We all want control. I see this perhaps the most when I'm with my wife and we're going somewhere. She wants to check the map or the phone. I want to rely on instincts and experience. She wants to ask someone for directions. I think that's the worst idea in the world. Do I hear an amen? Thank you. When something's gone wrong, she wants it fixed. I want to see if it might care for itself. She wants to find out what could have prevented it. I want to make sure that I'm not the cause of it. She wants control. So do I. We've seen this multiple times in life and multiple times even this week. But sometimes in life, God shows us unmistakably that only he is in control. And it's good that way. Our lack of control, especially when we're faced with unforeseen circumstances in life, is a core feature of our lives. We have to respond anew. We have to respond to unexpected realities. Wonderful ones, terrible ones, some in between. Births and deaths and job offers and job losses and graduations and marriages and pregnancies. Sickness, financial cost, financial bonus. Relationships lost, a new acquaintance. These things overwhelm us. Sometimes they alarm us. And whenever these new realities enter our lives, they have a tendency to knock us off our stride, to, to paralyze us in life. New realities, as we've been seeing, is really the subtext of the Christmas story. Wherever you turn, there are individuals, there are groups that are faced with new realities that are going to change their very lives. And the question is, what will they do? Where will they turn? Whom will they trust? Most of us know that the central figure of the Christmas story is Jesus Christ himself. Without his birth, without his life, there is no story, let alone a universe-transforming, life-changing story. So we celebrate Christmas. We celebrate this time of year. We celebrate all year, or at least we should. Jesus is the centerpiece. But he's not the only piece of the Christmas story. There are a whole multitude of other characters who are part of this storyline of Christmas. We're in the middle of our series, Responding to New Realities, this Christmas season in December. We're looking at most of the key players in the Christmas story. And for the past two weeks, we've looked at the Bible's account of two men, Zechariah and Herod, the, the first whose story was mixed and turns out positive, and the second whose example was a terrible demonstration of responding to a new reality. For the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at two more, Joseph on Christmas Sunday next week, and then Simeon on December 29th, both of whom were remarkably impressive and, and responded positively to their new reality. Today, however, is the rose between all the thorns, I mean all the men. Today we're going to look at the quintessential person, other than Jesus Christ, of the Christmas story. We're speaking of Mary, of course. There's a lot of tradition that has enveloped around Mary through the years. Tradition, the passage of time, different cultures, different myths about her. But the most reliable, in fact, the only authoritative account of the person and life of Mary is found in the Scriptures, in the Bible. And we see that particularly where two gospel writers 
include her and highlight her. And one more than any, and that's the Gospel of Luke. Dr. Luke writes many, many details about her life. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be in the middle of that long chapter, beginning in verse 26. If you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to grab one. We have some hosts who would love to put that in your hand. Uh, This is our gift to you if you don't own a Bible. Take, read, it is yours. If you do and you just forgot it in the hustle and bustle of the Christmas season, just take that and return that at the end as you exit. Luke chapter 1, we're beginning in verse 26. I hope you have your outline as well, which is on the back of the worship program. Uh, Try to make an effort to pick one of those up each week to help us as we remember what the scriptures say and how they speak to us. First point in your outline there, Mary, the ordinary woman. Verse 26, Luke 1, the Bible reads, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. We pick up this account of Mary in the middle of a long description related to Elizabeth and Zechariah. We looked at that two weeks ago. We've already been introduced to Elizabeth, wife of Zechariah. God promised a child to her through him. Remember, she was barren. And Zechariah, when he got the news, didn't believe God at first. And so he went mute for a time, many months actually. But in the end, he praised God and he trusted God. We've also seen mention of this angel by the name of Gabriel. He was the one who came and spoke to Zechariah. And Gabriel is one of just several angels in the Bible named, and he seems to show up again and again in the Old Testament when there is prophecy being given to people, there's Gabriel. But now the spotlight in the middle of Luke chapter 1 turns to a different place, and that's to the town of Nazareth in Galilee. Nazareth is located in what we would call today northern Israel. We've got a map we're going to put up for you to see where that is. It's up north there, and in the south, or toward the bottom of that slide, you see Jerusalem and Bethlehem not far from there. We were just in Nazareth a few months ago, my wife and I, with 20-some people, including some from our church. One of my favorite places in the entire country there, the entire region, if for no other reason than that we had a British tour guide in Nazareth, and all Brits sound uh, eloquent and brilliant no matter what they're talking about. He actually gave us a, a tour, what we could see and hear and almost taste of the parables of Jesus in that town. It was fascinating. Nazareth is nestled in the hills between the Sea of Galilee and then over toward the west, the Mediterranean Sea. Beautiful place, but not well thought of in Jesus' time. Residents of Nazareth were thought to be backward and kind of shady. In fact, one of the disciples said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And the expected answer was, of course not. Of course so, we'll see today. There was a young girl there by the name of Mary. She was a descendant of David. That means that her lineage could be traced back uh, to the royalty of the esteemed King David. So she had that in her favor, even if her hometown or the town where she resided was the butt of jokes. In addition, Luke says here that she was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph. And getting married for many of the young ladies of that time and of all time was one of the biggest things they anticipated 
in all of life. And she had a certain pledge that this would be her reality too. She was engaged, or we might say more specifically, she was betrothed. Many of you know that betrothal back then was a stronger, more binding kind of commitment before marriage than our typical engagement. There were legal requirements yet to be met. There were social festivities yet to be had. But the relationship's future was certain. Luke adds here that Mary was a virgin. That reflects the social, the moral expectation of a Jewish young maiden. The, the word there is the word parthenos. The Parthenon in Athens gets its name there. This was used of young, unmarried females, and it implied, correctly in this case, that they had not been sexually intimate with a man. A betrothed virgin was almost always a teenager, and quite frequently at the younger end of that age. And it would be very defensible to say that Mary was probably about the age of 14 in this story. Mary was young, she was sexually pure, she was committed, she had a bright, hopeful future in front of her, what she had dreamed of or been told she ought to in life. Her desires were set up for her. Luke contrasts then what she's about to hear with what was told to Elizabeth or to Zechariah, parents of John. The tone of this setting, one New Testament scholar writes, of Jesus' birth matches the tone of his ministry. The great God of heaven sends the gift of salvation to humans in a serene, unadorned package of simplicity. Of all the stunning things about the Christmas story, few of them are so stunning as this. It's simplicity. This is strange because if God is to take human form, wouldn't you think that there would be a grand procession for the ages? If a divine king was to set up earthly residence, don't you think there would be a grand coronation for all time? And yet the announcement here, the means here, the location here, the birth here are all marinated in simplicity, even humility. What a lowly birth indeed, to quote the song. One more thing here worthy of note, Elizabeth and Mary are at different places in life. Elizabeth you might remember, is supposed to be too old to bear a child. She's been barren all these years. Mary's just a young teenager. She's just at the beginning of her fertility of being able to bear children. But God uses both of them, old Elizabeth and young Mary, to do something that was shockingly good. Pastor of our time says Zechariah and Elizabeth are at the end of their long lives while Mary and Joseph are beginning theirs. Catch this. What God does in the world has nothing to do with our ages or our hometowns. God uses whomever he wills. Never say, I'm too young for God to use me. Never say, I'm too old for God to use me. God uses whomever he wills, and that story comes to light. Second point in your outline, Mary the Chosen Mother, verse 28 the story begins, the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, you found favor with God. Here Luke begins with this announcement to Mary. It's a greeting, it's an assurance, it's a note of, of honor. Mary's highly favored. The original word there is associated with our word grace. 
Grace is God's gracious choice of someone through whom God is going to do something special. The grace of God is upon you. We might retranslate this. In other words, there's nothing special or or worthy in Mary's life to warrant God's grace or favor upon her. Mary is not a perfect being. She's simply the recipient of God's grace. When it comes to Mary, people tend to go to one of two extremes. They either magnify her so much, Wearsby writes, that Jesus takes second place, or they ignore her and fail to give her the esteem she deserves. Roman Catholicism has tended to make the first mistake. Some of you know that from your background. Mary becomes not only the mother of Jesus, but the mother of God, and subtly takes on a kind of fourth person of the Trinity status. Some even ascribe to her sinlessness. Now, whether Catholic doctrine can can be proven to show this, the practical effect is that there are millions of people who assume that Mary is without sin. And that is wrong. It's not true. But a rightful reaction to that can also be overdone, and maybe this speaks to many of us. That is to say that we regard Mary as nothing special, unworthy of praise. Though she's not sinless, precisely because she obeys, when she doesn't understand it all or doesn't see it all, means that Mary is a remarkable woman. Yes, the star of the Christmas story, the salvation story, is not Mary. It is the baby who who is our Savior. But Mary plays an important role. The emphasis in the wider story is on the greatness of the son, not the greatness of the mother. Mary responds, of course, to this announcement through the angel with humility and a level of honesty and candor that is remarkable. She knows there's nothing in her that that should cause these things to happen. The Bible says she's greatly or deeply troubled and wondering about this greeting. She's baffled here. She's being visited by an angel, told of God's special grace to her, and it makes no sense. It doesn't add up. She says, I'm just a young village girl about to get married. How in the world can this cosmic plan of God cross my path and include me in it? Am I hallucinating here? What's going on? Then the announcement comes, and angel Gabriel unloads a stunning array of news to her. Look at this, verse 31. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. A magnificent prophecy of enormous proportions. And we see this because we get to look back in salvation history. It was also enormous for them then and there. The Jews and certainly the Jewish leaders of Mary's day. Gabriel was writing a sort of resume. He was listing off the pedigree of this future child. And even if they expected the Messiah one day to come, they were shocked to hear all that he would embody. This was a description of royalty. This was a description of deity. This is fully God and fully man. 
It was Jesus. He'll be great, called Son of the Most High, given the throne of his father David, reigning over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. But if I'm guessing, I'm thinking Mary heard this differently. I'm guessing that Mary said something like this. Whoa, you lost me at conceive. I'll bet the rest of this prophecy was a garbled mess in Mary's ears when she heard that she would conceive and bear a baby boy. Why? Because even at Mary's young age, she knew something about biology. It takes two people to conceive a child. Some of you, some of us, in our sophisticated 2019 reality would say, well, wait, in our day and age, we've figured out a way around that. And you would be wrong. No matter how much technology you include in the process, you can't change this basic fact. You need, can I be candid, an egg and a sperm, and that requires the participation of two people, one male and one female. Even the biology lessons that my younger kids, ages 12 and 14, are studying this week confirm that. And Mary understood that too. Sexual intercourse was the only way that that could happen until very recently. And Mary knew that she had not slept with a man, so this was impossible. She says so, verse 34, how will this be, since I am a virgin? Mary might have understood some of the significance that was happening to her here, to her here but she, she hardly understood the process. Gabriel gives her some help, verse 35, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. It's an amazing statement. Other gospel writers pick up on this. Most High, Son of God, these were ascribed to God Himself. In fact, earlier, Gabriel had spoken about the Son of the Most High, which was higher than the prophet of the Most High, said about John. Mary, your child will have supernatural identity and purpose and power. Verse 36, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. Let's step back a moment. For many of us, this story is all too familiar. We, we read it, we hear it, we shrug our shoulders, we say, yeah, that happened. Yeah, that's the Christmas story. But, but for people who are intellectually honest, I hope many here, especially for people who are reading or hearing this for the first time, this is incredible. This is quite literally unbelievable, or so it seems. Hear it again. God would use his spirit to come over a young virgin in order to cause conception and the eventual birth of a boy. A boy who would have a supernatural identity and a divine purpose to fulfill prophecy and God's salvation plan. That's remarkable. Even crazy. Tim Keller, a pastor in our day, says Christianity may have never been unfamiliar to you. Maybe that's your story today. But if you've never stood and looked at the gospel and found it ridiculous, impossible, inconceivable, I don't think you've really understood it. Even Mary finds this hard to believe. And if you've had those thoughts, 
today or before, you're not alone. Having said that, though, to be overwhelmed and to be cynical or disbelieving, they're not the same thing. Many people in our day refuse to believe because they've already ruled out miracles. They say Jesus can't be born of a virgin and he can't be the son of God. Really? Let me say this, just because something is remarkable doesn't make it impossible. Thibidi Anyabwili, who is a pastor from the Caribbean, now in Washington, D.C., wrote, we don't have to stumble at Jesus' identity and humanity. The angel assures Mary and assures us, nothing will be impossible with God. Here it is. The moment you admit the existence of God, you must deny the impossible. If you say that the virgin birth is impossible, you're just confessing that you don't believe in the God of the Bible. Mary asked a question here. And it's easy for us who are familiar with the story from two weeks ago with Zechariah to say, what's going on here? Because Mary sounds a lot like Zechariah in her question, verse 34. But apparently there's no unbelief here. Mary's not asking God, can you do this? She's asking, how will you do this? Mary heard what would happen, but she doesn't know how it would happen. She's not expressing unbelief. She's expressing faith despite what she doesn't understand. Her question builds off of faith, not from unbelief. And that's why Gabriel does not rebuke her. We come to, in some ways, the climax of the story, verses 37 and 38. For no word of God will ever fail. What's that tell us? Number one, God's word succeeds. If God says it will happen, it will happen. God has a plan. God has a purpose. God has power. And that is true today just as it was back then. Number two, we ought to submit to him, which is what Mary expresses and does. Verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled, she answered. Then the angel left her. It's an amazing demonstration of trust. She responds to the grace of God and even the new reality that he gives her. She is saying in essence to God, you can do with me and my life what you want. Can you say that this morning? God, you can do with me and with my life what you want. See, God wants all of us to respond in the way Mary did. And the only way a person can genuinely say what Mary says is to believe that God's plan is better than our plans for ourselves. Do you believe that? For Mary, it meant humbling herself, confessing that God knows best, that God means well. What are the areas of your life, maybe even one this week, where you'll admit, I'm not sure if I trust that God's plans are better for me than mine for myself. Wiersbe says tellingly, Mary experienced the grace of God and she believed the word of God. And therefore, based upon that, she could be used by the Spirit of God to accomplish the will of God. What binds 
all that together, it's God. It's the recognition that my life isn't actually my life, but it belongs to God. And that's what Mary expressed, and that's what her example calls us to express. And when we do, there is a liberation and a celebration at hand. That's what we see next. Mary, the blessed relative. Verse 39 and following. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea. Luke doesn't tell us specifically where the hill country is, but it's safe to assume that it's near Jerusalem. Let's look at that map again here where we see where Nazareth is, and then in the south there, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and the Judean region, the hill country down there. We do know that it's a long way from Nazareth, up to 80 or 100 miles and probably taking the better part of a week to travel there. But Mary was eager to go there. She had special relatives to tell what had happened to her. Verse 40, she entered Zechariah's home. She greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. This is where I, as a male, and someone who's never been pregnant, feel a bit out of my league. I've seen women, including my wife, communicate things with other women that I just don't understand. She can communicate differently in writing and on the phone and with strangers and with family. To generalize, I'm more into facts and questions and future goals. She's more into feelings and stories and the present. It's not all a matter of personality and gender. There are lots of variations there. But here we see a very female interaction, and the joy, the affection are palpable. We can sense them. But I think what we have occurring here is more than just female greetings, the, the, the strong interactions of two pregnant women. I remember sometimes when my wife would say to me uh, in one of her four pregnancies, uh, did you see that? Can, can you feel that? She'd grab my hand and put it on her belly and say, you feel it? The, the, the kicking, the movement? And I usually had two options. One is to lie. <laughs> and the other was to tell the truth and say, no, not really. And she would look at me with this disappointed look, clueless husband again. Here we have a God-inspired response of John the Baptist in utero to the voice of the mother of our Lord. This wasn't just voice recognition. There have been studies in our day about how babies in utero respond. This was divinely given delight. Here's an unborn person able to express joy. And the response of Elizabeth is divine as well. She wasn't just elated. She was Holy Spirit-filled, the Bible tells us. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, verse 42, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. She commends Mary. John's limited by his age, limited by the constraints of being in his mother's womb. Elizabeth has no constraints like that. She, she gives verbal expression to the significance of the scene of what she had heard from Mary. And the Holy Spirit inspired that response. 
Elizabeth believes the word of the Lord through, in part, Mary. That's impressive. Because you can only imagine how some of the other relatives were responding to Mary. You're pregnant? How'd that happen? You've never slept with Joseph? Well, then with whom? The Holy Spirit came over you? Very funny. You're an embarrassment to the rest of us. And then you tell us some ridiculous story and expect us to believe it. You can only imagine. Had, had Mary and Elizabeth lived in recent decades in this country under Roe v. Wade, the plan of God to save the world would have been in jeopardy from the moment the angel announced it to her. She would have had a line of people, including relatives, some of them, saying, I don't think the time's right. I don't think you're the right person. Do you know what this will cause all of us? And they'd have sent her somewhere to care for the problem. Unwanted teenage pregnancy. But Mary and Elizabeth believed the divine story. That this pregnancy, this plan is from God Himself. That this baby is promise of the Lord. And Elizabeth commended Mary for believing even that that she didn't fully understand. And this fortified Mary. This gave her support in a very vulnerable time. Think about it. Mary doesn't know how Joseph's going to respond when she heads back to Nazareth. She's, she's soaking in. She's basking in the support, the security of her relative Elizabeth because she doesn't know what she's going to face back home. Mary's faith is being tested here. I love how John Stone Street from the Colson Center projects out a number of months after this event and what Mary's faith shows us. Kneeling beside the manger is a girl of no status or means who said yes to a divine summons to be part of the central event in all of history. When confronted with the profound and unexpected gift of being mother to Christ, a burden she would bear not just for nine months, remember, but for a lifetime, she accepted, and because of her obedience, our burdens are lifted. No wonder it was said that Mary treasured these things and pondered them in her heart. She had a central role in God's divine plan. She was significant because God included her in his promises, and she was trusting him every step of the way. So much so that she broke out in song of praise to God. Mary, the humble servant, beginning in verse 46, the Magnificat, as it's said in Latin, and Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For He has been mindful of the humble state of His servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. He's performed mighty deeds with His arms. He's scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but sent away the rich empty. He has helped His servant Israel, remembering to be merciful 
and to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. How impressive. How inspiring. What, what, what a highly developed hymn of praise Mary gives to God. A young teenage girl who trusted God even in only knowing part of His plan. The themes, the language of this remind me of another story told back in the Old Testament. 1 Samuel chapter 2 where Hannah, another woman who had been barren and begged the Lord for offspring, responds to the Lord in rejoicing that He saw her and cared for her and her people. You can take time and read that in 1 Samuel chapter 2. We won't do so now, but we do see the parallels. Back in Luke chapter 1, Mary's response is remarkable. It's God-centered, not me-centered. It's, it's centered on the people of Israel, not just on my life. Mary looks in the mirror and she doesn't see herself, but she sees the magnificence of God. She, she could say like the psalmist did in Psalm 139, how wonderful are your thoughts to me, O Lord. There are many themes in this passage. God is merciful to those who fear Him. God's power overcomes the proud. God exalts the humble. God responds to the hungry. God resists the proud and the rich. God is merciful to keep His promises to His people Israel. In fact, there's language of reversal here. That, that which no one expected, God provides. The, the nobodies and the nothings God uses in the middle of His plan to save the world. What seems a lost cause to others, God rescues. God cares for her. He cares for His people. He cares for His glory in the world. Tim Keller, New York City pastor, writes, Our greatest motive for surrendering to Him, to God, cannot be for what He will do in us. It must be to love Him for what He did for us. In that brutal shame and honor culture, thinking of Mary, she knew that she was accepting God's will even at risk to her life. Remember, she didn't know what Joseph would do to her. She knew that scorn would greet her back in Nazareth. She was unmarried. She was claiming virginity. There would have been a great stigma. She was off visiting a relative. Sure, Mary. Tongues would, would wag. She went away. She had a fling. And now, look, she's showing. She did so at great cost, but it only foreshadowed the greater cost of the one whom she would bear, who obeyed God's plan perfectly for us. Jesus accepted God's will knowing that it would cost Him everything. He gave up His honor and His reputation and His life for us. Time and again in the biblical story, Jesus shows us what it means to do the will of the Father. Time and again, Jesus shows us that it costs, that it, there's sacrifice involved in obeying God. And, and we even see here the mother of Jesus sacrifice in order to follow God. This was the mother who would later stand at the foot of the cross as her son was dying. The mother who would later hide with a group of his disciples before the Spirit came in Acts chapter 2. And yet Mary did so with trust, 
often with joy and immediately. The song asks Mary, did you know? And the answer is a few things, yes, but many things, no. But she believed that God knew better. And Mary was willing to put her life on the line for that. Keller adds bluntly, personally to us, Christian faith is not a negotiation, but a surrender. It means to take your hands off your life. So surrender to him and don't underestimate what he can do in and through you if you put yourself in his hands. Friend, this morning, where's God calling you to do that? What are the areas of your life where God's asking you to surrender control? Maybe it's in a relationship. Maybe it's in sexual choices. Maybe it's a call to forgive. Maybe it's in your stewardship of money. What about priorities in your life? What about your own children and lack of control? What about the health condition you face? See, God interrupts our lives, and he interrupted Mary's life with a powerful, with a revealing plan. And when God's will is made clear in life and we obey, just as with Mary, nothing is impossible. Do you believe that? As we obey the Lord, as we live transformed lives, we will be able to discern the will of God. Romans 12 says that. And that's the message about life from God. Just ask Mary. And look what God did with Mary's life and what God did through Mary for the world as a result. If you want to know God's will, if you want to know God's will for your life, start by obeying him. In our day and age, we often use phones in order to find out where we're going. Often we begin a trip and, and we want to see the whole picture. If I'm going to Los Angeles or San Francisco, I pull out my phone and I want to see the entire map. I want to know all of the roads and the interstates and the hours that will be there. I want to be able to zoom in and to, to zoom out. I want to see everything. But as soon as I press the button on my phone, start route, I don't get to see that. You know what I get to see and hear? Drive 700 feet and turn left. And once you do that, you'll get the next set of directions. That's how God works in our lives. That's how he worked with Mary. He didn't show her everything. He said, trust me, obey me. Step forward, and I'll tell you next what you do. God invites us to make his plans the itinerary for our lives. And when we do, we experience liberation, delight, and joy. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your work in Mary's life, and we thank you for the example that she is to us of a young nobody who said to the plan of God, here's my life, Lord, it's yours, use me. 
I pray that in looking at her example, and especially in looking at what her son did for us, that we would be compelled, in fact, eager to say the same thing to you, Lord. This life is not my own. It's yours. I trust you and your promises to do good work through me for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.